The Bane Free Radio Hour. Today on the podcast, One Sword, One Thousand Stories, though we're uh, only going to have time to talk about a few of them. And part 18 of our complete serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. That's starting right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's an honor to have you along. I'm your host, Bain Consulting Editor, David Afsharirad, filling in for Tony Daniel, who has, through Carrier Pigeon, gotten word to us at the Bain offices that he has stowed away on board a tramp steamer and is even now making his way back from Europe. In the meantime, on the podcast today is Forged in Blood Editor Michael Z. Williamson and contributors Casey Izell, John F. Holmes, and Rob Reed. And of course, we continue our serialization of Alliance of Equals. But first, the news. As you may probably know, Bane.com publishes new fiction on the 16th of every month. For September, we've got a real treat. Instead of the usual one short story, we're giving you three. And one of them isn't so short. First up, we've got a brand new story by Frank Chadwick. Chadwick is the author of Chain of Command, which will be released in paperback in October, and uh, this story is called What We're Made Of, and it takes place in the same universe as that novel. For the first time ever, a group of Marines is planning to assault an enemy space elevator downstation from orbit. If they succeed, they'll make it into the history books. If they fail, well, better not to think about it. It's up to Captain J.C. Murderset to make sure they don't fail. It should be just like the drills, right? Again, that's What We're Made Of by Frank Chadwick. Next up, we've got a novella by Catherine Acero. Children of Dust serves as a prequel to her new Major Bajan series, which takes place within her Scolian Empire. The latest Major, Major Bajan novel, The Bronze Skies, is out now. Before she was a private investigator walking the mean streets of the City of Cries, before she was a military officer with Imperial Space Command, Major Bajan was a teenager in the slum known as the Undercity. Above, the City of Cries was little more than a dream, but in order to survive in the Undercity, she will have to survive a nightmare. Again, that's a new novella uh, by Catherine A. Acero called Children of Dust. And finally, we are proud to present the grand prize-winning story in this year's Bane Fantasy Adventure Award contest. J.P. Sullivan took home the prize this year for his story, The Blue Widow. Teresa is a blue widow. As a member of the Order of the Blue Cross, she wields a king's blade against all supernatural threats. She's good at her calling, if unorthodox. But when the Mother Superior tasks her with returning to her hometown, a place she has not visited since leaving seven years ago, Teresa finds that there are horrors far more dangerous than any monster. Now she'll have to face her own past and prove herself worthy of her title. That's The Blue Widow by J.P. Sullivan. Uh, That was the winner of this year's Bane Fantasy Adventure Award. And now my interview with Michael Z. Williamson and the contributors to Forged in Blood. (music) 
Hey everybody, we're here with Mike Williamson and some of the contributors to the new anthology Forged in Blood, which is out now in hardcover from Bain Books. Uh, we just want to go ahead and introduce our guests. First up, we have Michael Z. Williamson. He is a veteran of the U.S. Army and Air Force, a consultant on disaster preparedness and military matters to private clients, manufacturers, TV and movie productions, and occasionally DOD elements. A bladesmith, which uh, I think probably factors into uh, the book we're talking about today, and of course an author. Uh, his lifelong fascination with weapons often leads to buying, collecting, fondling, and anthropomorphizing weapons, or else taking them to the range or Pell for practice. Uh, he's written uh, many novels for Bane in the Freehold series, as well as a standalone novel, uh, a long time until now, uh, which will not be standalone for long. I believe there's a sequel in the works. Uh, Mike's, thanks so much for uh, being on and talking about the book with us. Hey, it's good to be here. And we are joined by John F. Holmes. He is a retired sergeant first class, having served in the Army and Army National Guard for 22 years. Uh, he took a vacation in Iraq in 2005 after accumulating numerous aches and pains and realizing he was way too old for this army crap. Retirement led to a career change to cartoonist and writer. He is widely known uh, for the PowerPoint Ranger comic. Uh, John F. Holmes, thanks for being on. Thanks. Much appreciate it. And finally, we have Casey Azell. Uh, she is an active duty USAF helicopter pilot. When not beating the air into submission, she writes military science fiction, science fiction, fantasy, and horror fiction. Uh, she has been on the podcast a couple times talking about her story, Not in Vain, which was in the John Ringo Black Tide Rising anthology and also reprinted in my year's best uh, military and adventure science fiction. Uh, today, she will be talking about a different story uh, on the podcast for a change. Casey, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, David. It's good to talk to you again. All right, Mike, I want to start with you, uh, since you are the editor on this thing. Uh, Forged in Blood is set in your Freehold universe, but it's... Um, you know, we've we've done Bane's done several of these anthologies, and we've got one coming up with the Monster Hunter Files, where we take an Bane takes an author's popular world and lets other writers write stories in that universe. This one's a little bit different in that it doesn't all take place in the Freehold. I guess it is in the Freehold timeline, but um, it's a little bit different. It moves through time in a way that maybe is unexpected. So maybe just tell us about that, and also what the um, there's a, a through line in all of these stories as well. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I finished Freehold. I was working on the weapon. I had some continuity between them because they overlap in the time frame. And um, yeah, I realized there was potential for a story about how you know, one character's got a sword that was reforged from somebody else's sword. So where did that sword come from? And uh, it just got out of hand. Uh, I put the concept together, and I actually talked to Leo and Jason about 10 years ago, and they were already writing stories. It was like, whoa, 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 first I have to finish stuff I'm working on, put a proposal together, get it to Bane, get Bane to accept this idea, you know, and then, you know, start writing stories. And uh, I worked, uh, sort of worked back on the timeline and forward on the timeline. And so this is, you know, it's sort of like the Axis had his head replaced three times and uh, it's half replaced twice. You know, the, the sword has been... Uh, reforged, uh, reincorporated into other pieces. You know, there's not much in the way of original metal left in it. But it uh, it carries a 
consistency through a timeline. And these stories are about different people who held on to this artifact or its incarnations. Right, yeah. So we follow this this sword throughout time. And it's interesting. This is definitely science fiction. But the first third, maybe, of the book or so is not really. It's more straightforward um, military or there's stories set in ancient Japan or uh, medieval Japan. Um, so that was that was very interesting to, to see something go through time from uh, the past through the contemporary uh, up into the future. How did you assign these stories and where they were going to all fit? Did you have ideas? I want something set here. I want something set in this period and assign those or did people call dibs on things or how did that work? It was a combination. I had uh, the timeline done and then I had several specific episodes picked out and I realized I needed a couple more because there were excessive gaps. Um, I contacted uh, writers. Several of them said I'm in. A couple of them said I don't have any time, but I can recommend someone else. And then there was uh, one meeting at LibertyCon where Chris Smith came up and said, I heard there's a freehold uh, anthology working, and I have a story idea. And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea, but that's not what I'm doing at this point. I'm doing this. And he said, oh, well, then I have an idea for that, too. Like, well, then I will consider it. <laughs> so, <laughs> And uh, so then I sent out the list and said, so these stories are already accounted for for these authors. Here's the stories that are left, you know, call dibs. Uh, got the whole thing filled in and uh, got Bane to agree and told people to start writing. Yeah, and what was, um, I, th I would imagine that this was not something you had, I'm sure, some of the timeline mapped out, but, um, you know, when one writes a science fiction universe, you don't normally think, like, let me go back to the 1800s to start. So, um, was that interesting or fun or uh for you to to extend forward and backward in time what you'd probably already kind of had in mind for the freehold universe and you know it was a case of i on the one hand i wanted to write this story on the other hand there was tremendous amounts of research would have been involved in all the historical stuff uh that are not in my area of expertise and would have required way too much research and it's like you know i probably know some people who are familiar with these eras so why don't I get them to write those sections? Um, but uh, yeah, laying out the the timeline was uh, yeah, it was so. Well, where am I going to start? And actually, the Russo-Japanese War segment that Mike Master wrote was actually added later because I realized I had this huge jump from medieval Japan to World War II. It's like, well, what can we put in there? Um. Let's talk about, uh, we'll kind of go through chronologically maybe with you guys. Um, so John F. Holmes, I wanted to talk to you about your story, uh, He Who Lives Wins. This one's set um, uh, in a World War II era. Uh, it's It was the one that jumped from, I guess, and we put Mike Mass's story in between there. Um, just tell us a little bit about that. Um, this is really a straightforward uh World War Two. It's not. A, it's not a science fictional story at all. Obviously, um, so just talk to us a little bit about it and uh, let the listeners know what to expect, maybe when reading it. Sure. Um, I served a lot of my time in the army as a, an NCO, and I've been very involved in small units and, and motivating and training, you know, squads and teams and sections and stuff like that. So, um, what really I wanted to explore was what made men fight and in the story itself 
there's two elements. Uh, the first element is from the Japanese point of view, um, the basically the culture of honor and the war warrior culture and how difficult it is to live up to that, uh, you know, just pressure of, you know, your father did this, your grandfather, his grandfather, all the way down. And that's epitomized by the actual sword itself. And then on the flip side of that, there's an American who really kind of starts out as kind of a skate or even really a coward. Um, you know, he's not really there for the fight. He's just trying to get by and he's thrown into the thick of things. And his motivation comes from basically, you know, the comradeship he has with his uh, fellow soldiers and the sacrifice that they commit. And he feels he has to step into it. So really I was just kind of trying to look at why men fight and how, you know, I kind of had to get the sword from the Japanese to the Americans. So that was where the idea came from. Uh, basically, my own experiences dealing with motivating young soldiers. Yeah, and um, I'm just curious because this is such a neat anthology and a neat idea. I'm just curious about how this came about. Um, was this something that Mike said, I want you to do World War II, or was this something that you'd come up with? And um, what was it like stepping into another author's uh, universe, even though very far removed from the books that, that Mike had written uh, in time? Well, um, yeah, I'm a pretty passionate World War II historian, but pretty much Mike just said to me, hey, you know, we've got to do this kind of, this is a slot that's left around the World War II era. And I started to think, you know, where did the Americans come in contact with Japanese where that might be a case where the sword could go from one to the other. And I started focusing on the island campaigns. And I found out that um, I was kind of new, but really wasn't super aware that the U.S. Army had a big presence on Guadalcanal. And everybody talks about the Marines and kind of pride in service. I wanted to throw the Army in there. So... I did a lot of research into the actual army campaign on Guadalcanal and the historical setting of the attack that goes on actually happened. Um, you know, some of the figures that are there are historical and I made my guys just kind of outliers of that. Um, so it was kind of easy to fall into that setting and Mike's books may be science fiction, but they're really about pride and honor and combat. So it was just pretty easy to plug into that, if that makes any sense. And now your story also um, dovetails with the one following it. Um, Rob reads uh, souvenirs, and uh, Rob unfortunately wasn't able to be on with us today. But um, that was just interesting to me. Did did you two discuss um, discuss that, or was that something that when you open the book, you go, "Hey, wait a minute, he's using my you know he's he's using my characters uh, in the next story." I did talk to Rob after he had written his story, and I think Mike had given him the kind of the backgrounds a little bit about how the sword was transferred, you know, during World War II. But my, Rob and I did coordinate, as in, you know, character names and stuff like that, to make it continuous. And I think that worked out really well. I, you know, read the book again last night actually, and it was a seamless transition. Um, and I also kind of knew a little bit about what the story was before me to kind of just make it you know the transition it working with another author was actually a really cool experience and i, I think it, it 
the communication that Mike and it facilitated between all of us just made things work out really, really well. Yeah, and I heard a beep. Rob, Reed, are you on? Yes, I had a problem connecting earlier. Hey, no problem. I had just said that you weren't able to make it, but we are glad that you were able to make it. So um, I'm just going to go ahead and introduce you now, and we'll talk. We're right at the point where we would have talked to you about your story. So that was great timing. Uh, Rob Reed inherited his love of reading from his parents. He loves science fiction, fantasy, mysteries, thrillers, and military history. He's been an ER clerk, reporter, magazine staff writer, and firearms instructor. As a self-described professional projectile launcher enthusiast, he writes about guns and shooting for a variety of publications and website. Uh, Rob Reed, uh, glad that you were able to make it on, even with a little technical difficulty there. So I was just talking to uh, John F. Holmes about his story and how it dovetails very nicely into yours, um, Souvenirs. And this one was interesting because it is not... um, a military setting or a battlefield setting. Not all the stories in the book are, but um, I just, that made it stand out to me. And uh, it's about um, a war souvenirs, essentially in this case, of course, being the sword that sent forged in blood is centered on. And I just wanted you to talk about the story, maybe let the listeners uh, know a little bit about how it came about and what writing it was like. This was a really interesting story to put together. Um, I have to admit, uh, when we were discussing what uh, stories I might have a slot for, um, it wasn't my first choice, but I'm glad it worked out this way because the other two were written by, uh, I believe Peter Grant did one of them, and I forget who did the other one that was set in the future, but they were both better interpretations of that material than what I had been thinking of when I was noodling it in my head. Um, and this one was, was a lot of fun to put together because, uh, as, as you pointed out, it, it's not actually set during wartime. So I decided to make it about, you know, fathers and sons and responsibility and, uh, the lessons you can learn, you know, from someone who's been through a war, even though you yourself have not. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away, but I think, uh, I think I really tried to make the themes fit within the freehold universe. Um, this is obviously before um, the, you know, the, the colonization of the planet exists several hundred years before. But uh, I'd like to think that some of the characters would have fit, uh, you know, fit in just as well 200 years later. Yeah, the challenge when talking about short stories is always you don't want to give everything away, and especially with a story like this. Um, I will say, uh, even though in the book we have um, you know very intense combat scenes, uh, this story in a in a way really had me at the edge of my seat. And uh, even though it's a much um, smaller stakes in a way, it, it, what we would think of as smaller stakes, it really I think you you did bring those themes to the fore. Uh, in a much more human story and um, just wanted to commend you on that. Um, We talked a little bit to John Holmes about you guys working together um, because this is one continuous family story or maybe not continuous, but uh, does involve those characters. Uh, Was there anything about writing that, um, how that dovetailed together with him that you wanted to share? I I tried to be very respectful of the character that he introduced um, in his story uh, being one of the primary characters in my story, um, I tried to be respectful of it, and I looked at uh, the clues he gave to the background 
and to the thinking and some things John told me privately uh, when I, you know, when I did my interpretation of them so that it would, it would fit in. And, you know, and also realizing this is, you know, 10 years later, the war's over and he's established a life for himself. Um, but I, I think I tried to try to stay true to the heart of the character. Uh, and then going from there is you got the other characters in that same family, you know, kind of followed that family line right on down. I was, I was impressed with how it turned out. I wouldn't have written, um, the story in that way. I, I, I wanted the, uh, transition from wartime to peacetime and then setting it up for the, uh, actual future science fiction stories that were coming up. And, uh, Rob sent it in. The first thing I said was, okay, well, I need more of this. <laughs> what you've got is good, but there needs to be more. <laughs> you, you stop too soon. Let's just yeah, keep this going. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a very, there was a lot of tension regarding, you know, how this artifact is being handled by a couple of kids who really don't have the context to understand what it is. You know, to them, it's sort of a, an object of interest and desire, but it's, it doesn't have the same emotional impact it does to the, uh, the veteran who, uh, recovered it. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and then right after, um, Rob's story souvenirs, um, Mike, we have a story co-written by you and, uh, Dale C. Flowers that in a way was my favorite because it was very funny. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a firearms or, uh, edge weapons collector, but I, I'm a guitar player. And to see the crap people do to these vintage guitars, <laughs> I very much related to this. This is it's a short story. It's it, in some ways a little slight, I guess, compared with some of the other grand themes we've got. But I really enjoyed this one. I just wanted you to talk about it for just a moment. <laughs> yeah, I've worked on guitars, too, so I, I feel your pain. Um, yeah, this it, basically what happens when Bubba gets a hold of a priceless artifact and decides he's going to fix it. And I actually had a sword that was in the condition described in that story at one point. A friend of mine brought this to me and said, look at this poor thing. What can we do? And it's like, um, there really isn't much we can do. I'll, see what I, I, I'll, I'll do my best. But I mean, at this point, whatever damage was done naturally has been compounded dramatically by some complete incompetent who thought he was you know, fixing it. And... Uh, uh, Dale's screen name is uh, Harry Paget Flashman, um, <laughs> if that gives you a hint. Uh, but uh, he's a retired Navy. Uh, he's also a collector. And uh, you know, we've both uh, acquired and, and seen the work that uh, has you know, come across the bench that people have uh, fixed one way or another. Uh, Cross-plating, um, uh, polishing that wasn't done properly, uh, uh, camouflage jobs, uh, some whole stocks, swords that have been, you know, sharpened on the grinder. Uh, and uh, so I said, I need somebody who can redneck this up. Harry, can you redneck this story up a bit more? And uh, by the time he was done with it, I had to actually dial it back because it was the most overeducated redneckery I've ever seen. And uh, <laughs> even though I'd uh, plotted it out and reading it myself, going, oh my God, no! <laughs> Yeah, and it's sort of, um, when you look at some of these, for, it's it's wonderful because the first part of the story is told from the point of view of the guy who's doing this, ruining it, thinking he's fixing it. And so there's a great dramatic irony there where you're like, don't, no, that's not. 
And it's also great because, you know, you you see these things and you think, you know, what you would like to have happen to the guy who, who did this. And um, we get a little bit. It's a cathartic experience. Let's just put it that way. Um, so um, I guess if we want to uh, then uh, I wanted to talk a little bit. This is sort of an interstitial ch- story that takes place to kind of get the sword from one point to another. But you also have these little interstitial um pieces throughout that that uh, kind of are from the sword's point of view and i just wondered if that was those were fun to write they seem like they would be kind of a cool uh, thing to do those were fun and very easy to write um you know if the sword had a personality how does it feel at this point yeah. um and actually i uh so that story actually set up for Kratman's story, and then we moved to the near future. And, uh, yeah, Kratman took that and ran with it brilliantly. Um, you know, he actually incorporated the sword's personality into his story. And, uh, you know, it's, it's simultaneously tragic and comedic. Yeah, I was going to ask you at the end to talk maybe about some of the other stories, but do you want to talk about Tom Kratman's? Sorry, that was it. I mean, you know, he, you know, he, the artifact has been mostly restored as best it can be, and his character acquires it and goes off to fight uh, a new politically correct war. <laughs> Which, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then we segue into your story. Uh, again, this one was with Leo Champion. Um, the day the tide rolled in. Um, even if we just talk about that. Um, that's actually... Uh, related to a project we had mostly done for about a decade that we're trying to wrap up now, which is sort of a near future background for the Freehold universe. And uh, yeah, so the sword had to get there because that's where it's going from there to uh, Granny of the Freehold and you know, the future uh, stories. And uh, so basically uh, uh, Leo's job was to condense the background of an entire novel into the first uh, three quarters of a page of that story, <laughs> which he did well. Um, and then we went back and forth writing the uh, moving the character and the, the scene along. And uh, so, yeah, it's um, it's the near future Indonesia. It's fragmenting yet again because Indonesia's had that problem repeatedly or what used to be the Dutch East Indies. And... Uh, there's inter internecine conflict all over, and uh, this former marine winds up. He's a uh, commercial crewman, ship crewman, uh, realizing that this island uh, that they're porting at is going to get completely slaughtered, and re- regardless of the risk, he can't just stand back and watch it happen. Yeah, and what was this like? Um, have you written with other people before? You've got a few, uh, like I said, two, I think, co-written stories in here. Um, what was that process like? Was it you did most of the outlining, they did the writing, and then you did a polish? Or I'm always just fascinated by how writers work together. It varies. I, I co-wrote some uh, fantasy with my ex, and I've done some with my girlfriend uh, for different universes. And of course, those are in other people's universes as well, so I'm, I'm collaborating with someone in a third-party universe. And then Leo and I had been working on this, and uh, so for uh, for Dale's story, I'd written the the rough outline and some of the details and handed it to him to let neck up, as I put it, and then polished it. Um, with Leo, we had the shared universe, so I told him, you know, distill it down and get a set, 
so we don't know where we are. And then uh, I took some of an existing scene, put that in, and then we went back and forth. Um, with uh, the stuff I did with uh, Gail and then with Jess frequently, uh, they have the plot. Uh, I act in a supervisory capacity and basically edit and keep it on track because I'm a more experienced writer. And, uh, and again, it goes back and forth on content, dialogue, action. Um, I co-wrote uh, The Hero with John Ringo where he handed me a 20,000-word outline and I turned it into a novel and he reviewed it. Um, and then there was a shared universe, um, Plan of the Claw, where Bill Fawcett gave us the universe Bible. I read Harry, uh, Turtle Love's story, I read uh, Steve Sterling's story, and then I wrote mine. And those, those weren't really collaborations, but they're, they're, you know, it was a shared universe kind of thing like this. Yeah, it kind of depends on the, the situation. Um, now, of course, you did not only co-write and edit the, in this, you also wrote some stories uh, on your own. Uh, solo Mike Williamson, um, two of them back to back, The Reluctant Heroine and The Thin Green Line. And these, uh, again, these are uh, sort I mean, they're all related stories, but these are even more related that we follow again, um, the same character. Uh, and these do take place. The first is during the, um, separatist war with Earth and, and, uh, the freeholders. And, uh, so this is probably some familiar ground for you. Um, what was it like? Uh, how, how did you decide to set these where you set them? And, and for readers who've read the Freehold books, um, where do these fall and how do they relate? So the first one is just an excerpt from the uh, Battle on the Bluff in Freehold. Um, and then I uh, edited it so it became a, a standalone short story rather than a, a chapter, actually a couple chapters. Um, so that that's an existing story just worked in because that character had the sword and that was a significant battle. Right. Um, the second one was a, a, I wanted to write a story in the free old universe of uh, somebody attacking an embassy and realizing it was a really bad idea. Uh, so I wasn't able to use <laughs> their embassy, but I was able to use somebody else's embassy and, uh, you know, lay down that, uh, you know, that, that different cultures have different ideas of how they protect their resources. And uh, it seems an appropriate place. And, of course, the character has aged and is a, uh, is a lot, uh, well, battle-worn. And it is not really all that enthusiastic about this type of stuff anymore. But if it's got to be done, it's got to be done. And uh, it was semi-fan service. I roped in a couple of other characters that I knew people liked because I could easily fit them in there. And uh, then it turned out to be more than just a battle. I had to go into the characters and the the, the universe, as one does. So it turned out longer than I'd uh, expected. But I was, I was happy with how it turned out. Yeah, I think it was a good one. And I think uh, so. This was this will be a, a pleasure for fans of the the Freehold series to um, return to these uh, this character. Uh, and. Uh, and was that what was that like returning to these character you know this character that you said you know appears in the first freehold novel um was that what was that like just re, yeah return coming back to a character that you've written in the past um maybe a little bit later and in a different way than you thought yeah i, I wrote the rough of freehold in about 1998 <laughs> um i sold it <laughs> uh in 
Jim and I discussed it at length in 2001 and did some editing, and then I sold it in 2002, and it came out in 2004, so it was a long time ago. And uh, I, I actually don't reread my books. Um, once I'm done with the entire production process, I'm burned out and don't want to look at them again. Uh, so I had to uh, ask a couple of friends to look up some info for me. Uh, I did a little bit myself. I just really don't like rereading the old stuff. And then when I... Um, you know, edited the first story, I realized, my God, I sucked as a writer back then. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the first novel, it's okay, but I am so much better now. Um, and uh, then for the new one, it's like, so this character is going to be, you know, 20 years older. <laughs> and you have a different, I'm 20 years older, and you have an entirely different perspective on things <laughs> at that point. You know, and once you, once you have kids, once you've uh, been around the block a few times, then shot at, blown up, run over, um, stranded, whatever, a few times, you, 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 your outlook changes. And uh, so it was uh, it was fun to do. I just I had to get into the right mindset. Yeah. I, I, remind, I know a lot of writers are like that. They don't want to, once it's published, they're done, partially because by the time you read proofs and proofs and edits and edits, you're sick of it, but also because you want to fix things, you know, and you can't cause it's already in print, you know? Um, so, um, yeah. And you're not good at special editions. It, yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> um, well then we, we move into, I believe, uh, this is Casey's story. And I believe this is sort of the, um, uh, a part of the, the timeline that had not been explored in the freehold books. Um, obviously the past had not either, but, the past is our past. Um, so this was a, uh, this is a little more out there. This story is called, um, family over blood. And, uh, it doesn't close out the anthology. Uh, Mike's got another story choices and consequences, though. That's again, a smaller tale. That's more, um, tying up loose ends. Uh, so Casey, what was it like to get to, um, be really far out there in the timeline? It was, uh, it was actually really a lot of fun. Um, and uh, when uh, when Mike offered me the far future, in, you know, encounter with aliens slot in the timeline, you know, at first I I confess I was a little bit intimidated because uh, I had no idea what to do with it. You know, I I had read Freehold and and was familiar with the Freehold universe, but um, but you know, this is not this is sort of the continuation of or the the far future that that hadn't been explored um, in anything that Mike had you know, that was out that I could, that I could read. So, um, he told me that I could make up an alien race, uh, which was super cool. So I made up, uh, I made one up, um, and, uh, just kind of for fun, I, you know, here's this story that centers around this, this artifact of the, of the sword. Um, and so I, I thought it would be interesting to match the sword up with an alien race whose culture and identity and, um, even physiology to a certain extent is, uh, is sort of, um, weapons are, are an integral part of those things for them. Um, so, so that was cool. I got to you know, make up some badass aliens that graft edge weapons into their, into their physiology. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and that was, that was really enjoyable. Um, Mike was, he was terrifically supportive and I, I really actually learned a lot, um, from him in this process because, you know, he kind of, he gave me the, the sort of the, um, 
the parameters and then run with it. And then when I presented him, you know, with the finished story, he came back and said, um, I like this, I like this, I like this. This doesn't work in my universe. This doesn't work in my universe. You know, let's get in here. Um, and I was, I was really very grateful to him for the mentorship that that process provided, both in this specific instance in writing this story, but for me as a writer overall, too. It, it was my fault there was stuff there that wasn't supposed to be because I was like, well, it's sort of fleshed out, but I haven't really, you know, well, go ahead and write. Oh, no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, she, had to, she had to edit a few things, and it, it was my fault for not having a fully formed vision when I started. I was going to say, it wasn't onerous at all from uh, from my perspective. And, and like I said, I, I think going through that process um, certainly refined my technique as, you know, as a writer myself. So, you know, I'm I'm happy to chalk it all up as a learning process, and, and thank you for it. So, <laughs> In case I was going to ask about the aliens, whether you made them up or whether that was Mike, but you answered that, this, that you got the chance to do it. Did he, did you come up, with the, I guess the question is now, did, did you come up with the idea of even having aliens, or was this something he said, look, I, this is the future, we want aliens in it, and you get to make them. How did that come about? Um, yeah, so, he, so Mike specified that, that the sword would be carried in an encounter with an alien race. Um, and, uh, you know, when I clarified with him, he, he stipulated that it was one that we had not yet seen in the Freehold timeline, um, in any of his books. Um, and, uh, so at that point, you know, I, I was kind of off, off to the races. Um, and I, I think what I did was I, I sent him back a, you know, quick email and said, Hey, here's what I'm thinking about. You know, they're, they're a bipedal race and they, um, you know, they, they come from an iron rich planet. So they, they have evolved to work with steel. And in fact, they do, this thing where their warriors graft weapons into their into their limbs, um, and and as a culture they reveal revere uh, melee combat. Um, you know, does that work? Is that cool? And um, um, uh, Mike came back and said that that you know that that was good by him. And uh, and I asked him a couple more questions about steel and <laughs> the composition of it because it's not something I'm super familiar with. Um, so it was he was he was. It was neat for me to be able to have him as a resource, both as an editor and a senior author, but also as a subject matter expert because obviously he's a bladesmith and uh, I am manifestly not. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, thinking about the um, the cutters or the the name given to the aliens in this, um, thinking about them and how um, having that culture that they have of using edge weapons. Um, just reading over the story, you know, when I heard the idea for this, I thought it was one really, really cool. And I also kind of wondered how are they going to pull this off? Because you're talking about modern, you know, modern day and science fictional, and there's a sword in it. And I think one thing that came across reading the book to me was how well everyone integrated that the sword into things. It never felt um, tacked on, and it never felt forced to um, that someone would be using it. And I think that's just a tribute to all the writers in here that they um, really did a good job of the sword really being an integral part of those stories. And um, and like I said, never feeling forced at the same time. Um, so, Mike, you uh, closed this the book out with another story called Choices and Consequences. And again, from a, uh, like I said, the perspective I have of, of playing music is I see um, guys who will play these vintage instruments on stage and then you see guys who will put them in a shadow box and never play them and they're meant to be played and you um 
you hit on that in this in with with the sword in this and to close out the anthology and if you wanted to talk just a little bit about that uh that story i have all that that all the time with my uh firearms collection this weekend um i was shooting a 200 year old german cape gun and a original civil war revolver and some of the collectors are oh my god it's the worst thing you can ever do is to shoot them and like dude they were made to be shot as long as they're mm-hmm. kept in good repair that's what they do um and some of the uh, toys I'm looking to buy you know, are decades old. And, you know, never been fired. And it's like, I'm not sure I want to buy one that's never been fired because I'm going to shoot it. Um, so, yeah, the uh, yeah, it, it comes down to, you know, what do you do with uh, this artifact once you've identified it? Is it, you know, are, are you going to put it in a museum? Are you going to uh, take it out and beat it up? Uh, are you going to let the dice fall where they may? Yeah, and, and different characters have different perspectives on what you do with such a thing. Yeah, and uh, and that, like I said, closes out the book. Um, we have, of course, not everyone can be on when we do these discussions of anthologies. Um, Mike, did you want to talk about any of the other stories or just mention some of the authors? And Tony Daniel uh, has a long novella in there, and he was hoping to be on, but as I said at the beginning of the podcast, he's uh, in Europe or on his way back from Europe, so he wasn't able to. Um, but we've also got, we mentioned Tom Crapman, Larry Correa. Yeah. Going from the beginning, um, I'd asked Brad Torgerson. He said he wasn't available due to uh, both uh, professional military and writing uh, schedules. Uh, he recommended Zach Hill, who I knew secondhand. Um, I asked Zach for a writing sample. I said, sounds good. What do you want to write? He said he'd start with ancient Japan. Um, and like three days later, he sent me a story that was you know, the foundation for everything else. Uh, wonderful story. And then tragically, two weeks later, he died. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he did write a really good story, and uh, he's got that to be remembered for, among uh, his other accomplishments. Um, yeah, Larry Korea said he really wanted to do feudal Japan. He wanted Odin, Nobunaga, people, and uh, yeah, it's uh, there's a whole section of the book that's dark and gritty, starting with that. Um, when I contacted Mike Massa because I needed Russo-Japanese War, uh, and given his background, I thought you know he might have some. Uh, uh, something for that. He, his uh, email response was, uh, you know, very, very professional. He says, "Well, professionally, I have a, uh, you know, uh, knowledge of that era and uh, and of this and that, and I believe I can deliver a, a product that will be satisfactory." <laughs> Basically, is what he said. Um, in his case, <laughs> yeah. he's a, a newer writer, uh, and same issue I had. It was way too long a story to start with. It was a great story but it was way too long to fit in there. So we had to go back. It's like, well, this scene, as great as it is, really doesn't advance the plot. We're going to have to cut that out. And shortened it and tightened it up. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, John Holmes played very well off that. Um, you know, that, that whole section is just... Uh, you want to turn the light down dim and have a gray uh, shield over everything. <laughs> um, yeah. Then Rob moves the uh, sword into a, another location for um, me and Harry to tragically destroy it. Um, uh, Crapman did a uh, uh, moving it back into war and uh, you know revitalizing things. Um, after Crapman, yeah, we move it to Indonesia. Then Peter Grant, um, who's from South Africa, he's been a South African soldier, a priest, a programmer. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I said, I need somebody who knows big game animals and vicious predators like a freehold has. And who do I know who knows vicious predators? Well, someone who's lived in South Africa among vicious predators with a military background. Um, and did a very nice job of laying out um, parts of the uh, settlement of the, of the planet and the system. And uh, even came up with a few more vicious animals to put into the mix. Um, so after that was uh, uh, Chris Smith's story about um, it's um, a take on the Red Badge of Courage. Another character who starts off as a coward and has to redeem himself. Um, that's during the Ripple Creek era. Um, then it was yeah, Tony Daniel uh, writing about. Uh, actually, it was Tony that was Jason next or Tony? Uh, Jason, was, uh, Jason was next. Jason was next. Um, that was another embassy fight, and I'd reference that in the weapon. It's, uh, while training for their special operations, the characters told to study up on, you know, one of them who'd uh, died heroically, but achieved great things in the process. And uh, so he did that story. Then Tony Daniel did up um, another point of view of the battle on uh, Matali. Um, when they're basically acting as uh, UN mercenaries. And uh, that brought it into Freehold Proper for my two stories, and then from there to uh, KCM and to be wrapped up. So mm-hmm. it's uh, you know, all the writing. I, I, every time a story came in, I'm reading it and going, wow. You know, a couple of them, they needed a bit of editing, which happens. But I'm reading, it's like, wow, great. <laughs> we got a great character, we've got a, a great story, and we've got a fantastic conclusion and so yeah, they're, they're all standalone stories that lead up to uh the timeline yeah and uh yeah, that's yeah, I, another I thing. Like, yeah i i don't i don't read my own books and i keep reading this and i'm going but yeah i don't oh right i didn't write most of this one <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it is uh it's uh it's like i said it's a great read and it it is neat because you can read it in order and I would recommend reading in order, but the stories do all stand alone, as you said. Um, so, okay. Well, uh, I will just say that it has been uh, a pleasure talking to everybody. Forged in blood is out now in hardcover from Bain books. Uh, it's getting great reviews and uh, we think, I think it's selling pretty briskly as well. So that's good news to hear. And uh, I just want to thank Mike Williamson and uh, Casey Azell, John F. Holmes, and Rob Reed for coming on today and talking with me. Thanks, Thanks so much, David. It's a lot of fun. Thanks, David. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. And now we continue our serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 11 Dutiful Passage Which means that my research was sound. There is profit to be made in Mylaster on Chessel's world, Paddy said warmly, eyes flashing with triumph, her soup forgotten on the table before her. Abruptly, her shoulders sagged, and she averted her face. Only... One is not allowed to keep it, which seems some way less satisfying than no profit at all. Also, she said, putting her spoon down with the air of one who has no appetite, I've overspent my spec money. 
Even if another high-profit deal presents itself, I haven't enough funds to take proper advantage. You did take a bold gamble, Sean said, leaning back in his chair. He was toying absently with a wine glass, all of his attention on Paddy. He had several times during the course of the meal perceived anomalies. A smile yoked to a sudden, frigid tremor of fear, a shrug of resignation linked to a flicker of white anger, and once more fear, shadowing a bold look of pride. I seem to recall, he added, when she made no answer nor even looked up, that we had touched upon the wisdom of committing so much of your cash to one deal. He expected a pretty sparkle of prideful temper and a sharp reminder that, had Chesselport Law not been quite so addle-brained, she would have trebled her funds. It was what he would have done when he was her age. It was what he would have been strongly tempted to do even now. Paddy herself, but it occurred to him, watching the subdued halfling across the table, that Paddy was not herself. Yes, sir, she said. I ought to have been more conservative. And there it was at last, a flare of bright, sharp heat. But I was right. Energy sparked and pinwheeled. Patty raised her head, and it was pride and justified anger he saw on her face. He took a firmer hold on his glass in case she should decide to throw. The anger evaporated. The pinwheel of pride fizzled into chill gray. Sean shivered, tasted grit on his tongue, felt stone beneath his palm. Across from him, Paddy sighed and shook her head, exhaustion coming off of her in damp waves. I see that your adventures have caught you up, he said. Shall we leave the rest until some other time? Curiosity stirred, striking a momentary spark of energy. She asked, rest? Oh, indeed. I understand that you might not like to do the work, but in my judgment as master trader, your research was accurate, your instinct was good, and you trebled your investment. In other circumstances, you might have gained your first repeat customer and a reason for the passage to include Chesselport among its scheduled stops. The circumstances that parted you from your profit before ever you had it in hand are apart from the transaction itself. He raised the wine glass and sipped, feeling Paddy's attention and the small beginning of a hope that she might somehow come about, despite recent events. Of course, I cannot make a determination of completed trade by myself. I must lay the case before another, unaffiliated master of trade, and abide by their opinion. We would not, after all, wish it to seem that I had shown my apprentice special favor. Your license will rest upon these early transactions. It is best that they are above question. He considered her. 
Face slightly flushed, bright eyes intent on him, no hint of stone in her pattern, weariness burned away by hope. What is it? she asked when he paused for another sip of wine. What work must I do? Ah, are you interested? What you must do is write an account of your transaction, including your research, the facts of your purchase, and of your sale. You will include copies of the sales receipt, the auction hall's record of the sale, and the public log entry of the magistrate's decision. I will tell you that straightforwardness and solid fact is more likely to be read favorably than impassioned outrage and that your facts will be checked, so be very certain that they are correct. Yes, of course. She was leaning forward now, watching his face. Yes, he repeated, and shook his head slightly. As with all such things, there is a deadline for submission of this report. You have three ship days to produce your part, as I have three ship days to produce mine. After we are finished here, I will contact the guild with the information that we have a case requiring a master trader's attention. Once our reports have been transmitted, the master trader will have two standard weeks to render her opinion, which she will send to the guild. The guild will then inform me of the outcome, and I, he inclined his head politely, will inform you. If the outcome is as we desire, your trade at Chesselport will be admitted to your record, rated favorably, and become one of the cornerstones of your license. And, Patty's voice squeezed out, she cleared her throat and began again. And if the master trader should disallow my trade, then it is done, and you have only lost what you never held. Her mouth tightened at that, and he tasted the sizzle of anger. But she did not choose to dispute him, and after a moment, she nodded. I am willing to do the work, she said. Very well, then. I shall expect your report on my screen in three ship days. In the meantime, there is one thing that I may do as master trader on the dutiful passage. Patty's expression took on a certain wariness, for which he didn't entirely blame her. But she asked him courteously enough, What may you do, sir? I may bring your spec fund back to pre-Mylaster levels. She blinked. But I made the buy. There was no loss there, though I will allow it to have been perhaps a little reckless. It's nothing short of astonishing how often boldness is found to be its own reward. However, this is no act of charity. It is a loan. A loan? Exactly. Should the master trader decide in your favor, the guild will reimburse you for half of the lost profit. If that should happen, you will repay me from those funds. And if the master trader decides that my case has no merit, 
then you will come to me with a plan to pay back the loan by the end of this trade run. Are these terms agreeable? Yes, Master Trader. Excellent. We are in accord. Now, may I suggest, as your parent, that you do not begin writing or researching your report until you have slept for at least a half-shift. Yes, father, she said, and gave him a fond smile that he found to be sincere on all the levels accessible to him. Truth told, I am a little tired. She was more than a little tired, but he held his tongue and forbore from probing more deeply, drilling for stone. Instead, he gave her a smile and allowed his love for her to sweep out and envelop her as he rose and walked her to the door. Sleep well, child, he said softly, gently reinforcing the impulse to sleep. Yes, father, she said, and stood on tiptoe to kiss his cheek. So, nothing yet? That was Vez coming in for her shift. She threw a fast glance at the change overboard, but she'd see the answer on his face easy enough. Nothing yet, Stu said anyway. It had become a ritual, like they'd taught at home before he got tired of ritual and hired himself off-world. He was plenty tired of this ritual, too, and even tireder of the fear that was the reason for it. Still peaceful, he said, watching the screen. The screen, divvied up into eight sections, one section each, for the ships that made up the being who called his self Admiral Bunter. The eighth displayed the boundary beacon where a ship jumping in would show first. Vez sighed and came over to stand at his shoulder, looking at the screen in her turn. How much longer you figure on waiting, Stu? Still got eight days on the station master's word last time I counted he said, stiffer than maybe he ought to been. Him and Vez, they worked good together. They consulted and kept each other in the loops. Not that there had been all that many loops at Jemiatha's jumble stop, nor crises neither. Except for the one they had now, and it was a doozy. Seven near-derelict ships, keeping station, keeping watch. He ought to have known better than to take an independent logic on, but the logic Admiral Bunter had saved the station's bacon. And he had some manuals, and he'd always been good with tech, and he'd been overconfident, is what. Should have dismantled the old ship's first thing. Should never have let that little captain talk him into keeping what she'd done made it sound so damn reasonable, made it sound like there wasn't going to be no problems at all. Been peaceable lately, he said quieter, and heard Vez sigh, felt her hand come down light on his shoulder. Ain't been anything but a couple junk haulers in since, she said. How do we know what it'll do if we get in a ship full of marines or some miners looking for a good time? It. Yeah, well, 
Vez was looking at a malfunctioning machine, which was worrisome enough for Vez, Stu thought. Independent logics was make-believe to Vez, something like you'd read about in thrilling space adventures and get all over shivery for a minute. Somebody with family, connections, Vez continued, her fingers pressing hard into his shoulder, instead of a rag-edged rim runner. Stu shrugged and moved out from under her hand. Still got eight standard days, he said, turning to face her. Vez pressed her lips together and shook her head. He braced himself for maybe a cussing out, but her voice was even and reasonable. We got the cannon up and targeted, she said. Well, that wasn't no good news, and a bad plan, too. The idea was to target all seven pieces of Admiral Bunter at once and blow him to galaxy nowhere before he knew there was a threat. Problem being that Stu was pretty sure the Admiral knew about the cannon. He was slow, but he was thorough. Observant, too. And to be fair, the cannon was a better idea than Vez's first, that they just send a tech onto each deck to decommission the comps. That, in Stu's not exactly uninformed opinion, would have been suicide. Admiral Bunter's personality was shared around 13 comps in the seven old ships. He'd know what was going on the minute the first tech went for main comp and he'd act to defend himself, which anybody would, and there would be seven dead techs and an angry Admiral Bunter. We don't know the cannon'll work, he said to Vez. We can't afford to have him mad at the station. So far, he don't see us as a threat. He sees us as something he's responsible for protecting. If we make a move that causes him to suspect we're trying to kill him, I can't answer to that, Vez. Nor I might not have to. Those ships can take out the whole station. And they will. It's not stable, Stu. I know, he said. I know that. I just, let's just wait a little longer, Vez, right? She sighed, but Vez nodded. Day nine, we still got nothing. We use the cannon. Stu shook his head. Day nine, we still got nothing. We pull the whole crew together and we go over the situation, come up with a plan. He reached up and resettled his cap on his head, reached to the screen to sign himself out and shut down upshift accounting and snatched it back as the bell sounded, the bell from the boundary beacon, announcing a ship incoming. Jemiatha's jumble stop, the beacon's rusty voice came across broadband. Please identify yourself and your purpose, repairs, refuel, supply. Please supply standard ID compressed crossload and active voice broadcast. The beacon was a long way out. But neither he nor Vez moved, nor maybe breathed, waiting for the ID to come across some clicks on audio, then the high ping of an ID arrival alert. There was a delay before the voice answer came, crisp as if the pilot was talking in Stu's ear. 
Ahab Isaias out of Waymart, pilot first class Inkirani Yo. Repairs. Stu stepped to his console and opened a direct line. The ship showed up now on radar as a small courier-class blip in a neat and proper approach orbit. Ahab Isaias, this is repairs. If you transmit a list of your necessaries, we can get started pulling what we'll need to fix you up and give you orbital vectors for a connect to the yard or the shop. Again, the delay of light, and now the comm link even brighter, like the pilot was using directional homing. I thank you, the crisp voice said in his ear. My necessity is to speak with master mechanic Steward Vanagoff. He had requested my assistance. The station seemed to rotate around Stu. He grabbed onto the edge of the console and let relief take him. Yard, he said, touching a different comm slot. Yard and security, be advised, incoming will visit the station by invitation. It was automatic now to tell the admiral to keep him calm and to be sure everyone was alert for trouble when a ship got close. What he couldn't say and hoped didn't show was his exquisite relief. The expert, the one he'd sent for, after it seemed clear that Captain Waitley's expert didn't have no time for Jemiatha's jumble stop. The expert had finally arrived. Before the passage left Shurbleek, Aunt Anthora had given Paddy a name day present. Never mind that her last name day had passed inside Runig's Rock or that her next would very likely be celebrated aboard the passage. It was never wise to attempt to reconcile Aunt Anthora with mundane realities. So Paddy had received, with all due gratitude, a bath set. Soaps and shampoos and lotions, all scented with lavender. A small luxury. Aunt Anthora had said, putting the box into Paddy's hands. A small luxury, niece, against a time when you may wish to smell like flowers. Smelling like flowers was certainly better than smelling like Chesselport or like fear. Paddy had therefore carried one of the smaller soaps and a vial of shampoo into the fresher with her. The lather on her skin was creamy and sweet, the scent reminding her of home, of Treala Fantrol, where there had been a planting of lavender directly below her window. Yawning, still Paddy took time to wash her hair twice and to think grateful thoughts to Aunt Anthora. Now, warm and sweet-smelling, she sat on the edge of her bunk and reached out to pick up the bowl the artisan had given her at Andiri. It rested lightly in her palms, the blue surfaces agreeably textured, the white surfaces as smooth as ice. Yet for all of its lightness and beauty, it was not fragile. It was in no danger of being broken. Like Uncle Valcon's special knife, Paddy thought, the crystal blade that was given to him by his clutch turtle brother. 
And who would think of using weapons-grade crystal in a glaze to protect art? Art and weaponry would seem to stand on opposite hills, and yet here they were, each nature complementing the other. If only she could turn that trick, she thought, and yawned suddenly and widely. Well, yes, she was tired. She had said as much to father and promised him that she would nap. The shower, but the shower had loosened muscles tight with the aftermath of fright, and the lingering scent of lavender lulled with memories of home. She put the bowl gently back in its place on her bunkside table and slid under the blanket. Settling her cheek against the pillow, she sighed once and slid into sleep. It had been a quick skim in and out at Biradine, clustering subsequent jumps as close as was prudent for human health. Pilot Tokol was eager now to reach the site of their assignment, this Jemiatha Station, or as it called itself, the Jumble Stop. It offered supply and repair, and kept an astonishingly large yard of out-of-service ships from which to draw parts. So far out from the more traveled routes, Hazenthal had said to Tolly. Why do they have so many? Probably because they're remote, Tolly'd answered. Out in backspace, a lot of the ships are old. Working a hundred standards or more makes sense to keep parts for ships that are the same age as your customer's workboat. It was fortunate for Jemiatha Station and also for the being that Tolly and Pilot Tokel hoped to educate that the location was so remote. One pilot and her ship had died through what Hazenthal's comrades deemed an error of ignorance. They were to assure that another such error was not made. Tolly had told her that education was key. Poor fellow wakes up into himself without any parameters, except only that the station's under attack and it's his duty to protect the station. First thing he does, without even properly knowing the why of it, is kill a ship and all aboard. Next time he sees a problem, it's no wonder he applies the same solution. It's the only answer he's got. It's gonna be my job, mine and Pilot Tokel's, to teach him better. Show him there's a wide range of answers and how to sort his problems down from code red. What if... Hazenthal had said then, for she was very curious regarding this process and what Tolly was about as a mentor. It had become apparent in their talks at board together and at meals that he considered this work, above all others, his work, and she hoped that she would be privileged to see him at it. What if he does not learn? She was immediately sorry that she had asked, for Tolly's face had turned grim, and he had seemed a soldier in that instant, duty lying heavy across his neck. If he can't learn, won't learn, then we'll shut him down, he said heavily. But you do not think that will be necessary. Well, 
I hope it won't be necessary, Tolly said, his grin not quite sincere. You know me, Haz, always looking for the good outcome. Tolly was resting now, and pilot Tokel was at study, leaving Hazenthal alone on the tidy bridge, sitting co-pilot's duty, watching the countdown in the corner of the jump gray screens. The last number cleared, the screen came live, and for the next while, her thoughts were those of a pilot newly re-entered into normal space. Though the pilot's chair was empty, she received the appropriate information from first board. Pilot Tokel was, in a sense, always at her board, which, given her nature, was hardly a surprise. Still, it had taken several breaking-ins before Hazenthal was comfortable with what Tolly laughingly called the ghost pilot. The door to the bridge opened as they came into range of the first beacon, and Pilot Tokel soundlessly took her chair, or rather, hovered above it, her delicate hands moving along the various switches and toggles. All's well, Pilot. Hazenthal said. The pilot surely knew so, but she'd found that she not only needed to state the obvious, but on the two occasions when she had made an attempt not to do so, the pilot had prompted her for a status report. Excellent, pilot Tokel answered. Wake pilot Tolly, please. I want him with us on the bridge when we approach the station. Yes, pilot. Hazenthal opened the line to Tolly's quarters and relayed the message, receiving a sprightly, I'm on my way, in return. Nodding, Hazenthal closed the line just as the calm light snapped on. An auto voice came, a little too loudly, over broadband. Hazenthal adjusted the volume down and felt a foolish tightening of her stomach. Jemmy Atha's Jumble Stop, please identify yourself and your purpose. Repairs, refuel, supply. Please supply standard ID compressed crossload and active voice broadcast. There was other traffic in the system, which the ship noted, as did the pilot, and the beacon message repeated, an endless loop if it received no answer. Hazenthal raised her eyes to Tokel to see who would answer the beacon, and by then Tolly arrived, still adjusting his shirt. His eyes were on the big screen, then. Those, he said, pointing to seven mismatched dots, ranged well away from the busyness of the station's core cloud. Dots that were somehow not the station's stock in trade, but something more. Those are the admiral. Hazenthal allowed a slight smile to form on her lips. Tolly pretended to be an amateur in everything, yet it wanted the eyes of a well-seasoned pilot to pick out and understand those dots on the screen. Please announce us, Pilot Hazenthal, Tokel said gently. Mentor, your attention here, if you will. Tolly moved to the pilot's side, taking an earbud from her hand. Hazenthal keyed the command, Terrigan, out of Waymart, 
Co-pilot Hazenthal Norfellium. We seek long-term docking. That's it for part 18 of our complete serialization of Alliance of Equals. And that's it for this week's installment of the Bane Free Radio Hour. Thanks to Mike Williamson, Casey Azell, John F. Holmes, and Rob Reed for taking time to talk with me today. And thanks to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And of course, thanks to you, listener. Tune in next week when Tony Daniel returns here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>